Land conservation normally conjures up images of vast scenic landscapes and natural wonders, places like Yosemite, Shenandoah, and Yellowstone. But equally as important to America's land conservation story has been the effort to protect and conserve landscapes of historical value. Today's guest, Dr. John Sprinkle, has authored a new book on this struggle and effort to preserve historically significant lands and structures, a volume that explores how the places we preserve reflect our cultural values. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast! This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Sprinkle. After working as a private sector historic preservation consultant for a decade, Dr. Sprinkle has served as a historian for the National Park Service since 1998. He is currently the bureau historian for the National Park Service's Park History Program. He holds a doctorate in American history and a master's degree in historical archaeology from the College of William & Mary. He is the author of Crafting the Preservation Criteria, the Origins of the National Register of Historic Places, as well as the recently published Saving Spaces, Historic Land Conservation in the United States. He serves on the City of Alexandria, Virginia's Historical Restoration and Preservation Commission and has taught historic preservation courses at a variety of institutions. John, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. So um, you've, you've had an interesting career and you have an interesting job right now. We want to get into all of that, but we always ask people who come on here because it's, it's always a different answer. But um, what was your path to preservation? Where did you grow up? Were you sort of just immersed in this and you always knew you wanted to be a historian? How did it all come about um, for, for you? Well, um, I'm, I'm sort of the classic example of that. Um, both of my parents were involved in the preservation movement early on. Uh, my mother's family are from Maryland for, well, three or 400 years now. And um, so she was involved in preservation activities in Baltimore, where I grew up. My father was an architect and did a lot of restoration work throughout his career. And he was also an, an amateur archeologist with the Maryland Society. So I guess I was born to do it, as they say, uh, as a career choice. And so right out of high school, you decided you were going to go, and is that when you went to William & Mary? No, I, I was um, doing archaeological work with the Maryland Archaeological Society at the Nassau Creek site, which is a Palo-Indian, has a Palo-Indian component, but it's also a, um, an Adena site back in the mid-70s when I was a teenager. And then uh, that inspired me to, because I thought that these anthropologists and archaeologists had gotten culture all figured out. And so I went to the University of Delaware as an undergraduate, was very lucky to work with Jay Custer and with other folks there and realized that rocks didn't speak to me. So I had to, went on to uh, William & Mary for historical archaeology and then went into history uh, with the uh, colonial history program there. And so what was your first job in the field? Well, you know, like so many people, I did a lot of work while a student. And so we did consulting work for the anthropology department, did consulting work for the Virginia Department of Transportation while I was a graduate student. But then when I came out with in 88, I guess it was, I came out and worked for the Maryland Geological Survey for a year, working for Tyler Bastian, the old uh, former uh, state archeologist um, and a few other folks there. 
um, doing work for them. So that was the first year. And then I joined one of the consulting firms, Lewis Berger, and um, then went on from there. So uh, you started working for the National Park Service in 98. Uh, what were you doing there first? Um, I came on board to be the head of the National Historic Landmark Survey. And that's the program that was established around 1960 to as a new class of historic designations. A historian named Ronnie Lee, Ronald Lee, created it in response to a variety of situations that was going on in the late 50s and early 60s. In many ways, it's a Mission 66 program. And so I ran the landmark survey for quite a while. Um, did I think we designated more than 100 properties while I was there. And then we also did, I, I believe it was eight national theme studies. Um, we happened to be working when, during the anniversary of flight in 2003. So we did a theme study on, navi- on aviation. We did a series of theme studies on the history of civil rights in the United States, um, including one on school desegregation, voting rights, and public accommodation. We did a study on the home, World War II home front and also one on labor history. So you did quite a bit of work when you were in that program, and now you're the Bureau Historian for the Park History Program. Um, right. Tell us about that. What kind of work are you doing? What kind of projects are you doing right now? Sure. The joke, of course, with the Bureau Historian is that I know a lot about drawers and, and veneer and cabriole legs and things like that. <laughs> and of course, that's not really true. Um, the Bureau Historian or the Bureau History idea started a while ago in that the agency thought, well, we really don't know what to do next if we don't know what we've been doing through our history. And several of the the history program uh, leaders thought of this idea and and came up with a concept of an administrative history where for the next generation, we need to document what we did. Um, And and a pretty common preservation practice is to document what you're doing so that the next generation knows what, what happened before. The administrative history program really started in the got going again, I guess, and restarted in the mid '80s, and it's continued on since then. There's a lot of transition, as you can imagine, within the Park Service leadership, and so one superintendent to another, it's almost like a book that they hand down to, to document the various changes and various decisions that were made through time. So, which which sites have you documented? Have you written these administrative histories yourself? And you know, is there, is there a good example or one that you've really enjoyed working on? Yeah, that it's and not surprisingly with, um, you know, seven regions and 84 million acres and 417 park units. Uh, it's a pretty diverse group out there. And the fact is that most of the program is run in the regions and in the parks themselves. It wouldn't be prudent or feasible for one person in Washington to start writing the administrative history of Assateague Island or, or whatever. Uh, and so what I try to focus on and what I work on pr- predominantly is the histories of national programs. And so I've spent a lot of time over the last few years working on the history of the National Park System Advisory Board, which is the um, advisory group that was established with the Historic Sites Act of 1935. And really, uh, it's continued to uh, broaden its uh, area of advice through time. Originally, it was designed to just identify nationally significant historic sites and to give advice to the Secretary of the Interior about which places best illustrated a particular theme, uh, that role has expanded through time to providing advice on almost any aspect of the national park system. So you're also, in addition to all of this and your professional work, um, a published author, uh, and you've you've published on a variety of different things. One of your your books that a a lot of folks 
I've talked about and I think a lot of folks enjoy is uh, your work on the National Register. And, the, and I mentioned that in your bio, the origins of the National Register. What got you engaged in that story? I mean, obviously, you kind of live in this world, so I imagine it has something to do with that. But is there any aspect of that National Register story that might surprise a listener and, and perhaps get them to, to pick up the book and learn a little bit more? Sure. Um, and it's funny because actually the, the genesis for the book came from my teaching at various institutions in the district around the District of Columbia over the last few years up to 2014 when it came out. I've taught a lot of classes where it's Historic Preservation 101, and the students, frankly, asked a lot of questions. You know, why is there a 50-year rule? Why do we have the certain policies related to moved buildings? What's the real backstory, as it were, to uh, many of the conventions and, and canon that the preservation community uh, hold dear? Things like, you know, with, with the 50-year rule, there was at one point there was a question saying, well, the 50-year rule should only be broken uh, if a building is threatened. And that sort of piqued my curiosity. And I thought, well, why is that? And so I was able um, to be able to dig through some of the administrative records and to dig through and find the, the real case studies as to why uh, the 50-year rule was established. And, and of course, it's not really a rule, and, and, uh, but yet we call it that. Uh, so that's what, that kind of thing. Was there anything in writing that book that really surprised you? Well, here's one I, I always makes is, is interesting is there's the general restriction within the register criteria about birthplaces. Right. And everyone thinks that, oh, that's just because there's everyone has a birthplace and there's so many of them. And we didn't want to have too many birthplaces of George Washington you know, listed or, or recognized within the federal system. And that's actually not the reason. The real reason about birthplaces is that during the 1930s and 1940s, the, the administrators in the, the uh, National Park System Advisory Board recognized that most people from the 30s and 40s on weren't being born in log cabins, as were the, you know, the, the great leaders and such of the past, and that they were born in, being born in hospitals. And they saw a real pragmatic issue about recognizing the birthplaces of modern folks because you'd be recognizing a hospital and not just the whole hospital, but one part of a hospital, the maternity area. So it, was a, it became a, a pragmatic decision to not do or not focus on birthplaces. Very interesting. What about cemeteries? Just now, now that we're jaw, jawboning here about, about the, the curiosities of the register, you know, there's this, there's this weird disconnect in the preservation community between cemeteries, a lot of it having to do with the National Register and it not loving, I guess, in, in one way of putting it, um, cemeteries and, and not always finding them applicable. Where did that piece come from? Do you know? Well, there's a couple things there. One, in, in the one way, the, the register through its policies has become, for certain kinds of cemeteries, that is, uh, veteran cemeteries, um, the day they're open, they're eligible for the register. That was a decision made several years ago. So in that area, uh, the, the folks in the National Register have made a very uh, broad statement. These are significant places uh, that should be recognized for that even before they're a day old because of their role as being resting places for veterans. Um, what I think is com complicates the story about cemeteries and such is the same issue with religious properties writ large in that uh, it's hard it, for a federal agency to recognize one religious site for, over another. 
Um, you know, who wants to, to judge between whether the, the first Baptist church is more important or the second Baptist church is more important or, you know, the brethren were more important than the United Methodist or whatever it might be. And so there was a, a general provision in the in a general practice within the early days of trying to avoid controversy. And controversy, you know, when, as, as our mothers taught us, was, you know, one didn't talk about religion. Uh, and folks within the register and the, with the earlier programs didn't want to have uh, or elicit any controversy. And plus, there's that constitutional provision about recognizing one religious group over another. Very interesting. Well, I mean, for anyone who, who is interested in preservation or works in preservation, I mean, obviously, we just sort of uh, scratched the surface of this book, but really just fascinating stuff about like you said, some of these things that we take for granted or, or just sort of canon of preservation. And, and in some cases there was, you know, it, it isn't a rule or it isn't a law. It's just, you know, it's passed down uh, from on high for, you know, nigh on 50 years now. And I think it's interesting to know the origins of some of the, the canon, just because it, it in a way, ex- it very much explains what the folks who were managing cultural change, managing change, 40 and 50 and 60 years ago, we're dealing with. And it's somewhat comforting to know that they were dealing with many of the same issues, if not all of the same issues we are dealing with today. Uh, and these are the, the hopefully rational decisions that they made to provide some um, foundation for what we do today. So let's talk a little bit about um, your more recent publication, Saving Spaces, Historic Land Conservation in the United States. I'm interested in this, if only because personally, I started my career working for uh, what was then known as the Civil War Trust, now is the American Battlefield Trust. So I cut my teeth in historic land conservation, battlefield preservation. And I, I think I've, I've told a story on PreserveCast before, sort of a, a funny story where I was getting interviewed when I was working at Civil War Trust um, by a graduate student about the work that we did there. And they said, well, do you ever do real preservation? And they were talking about building preservation. Um, and there was sort of this, this su- suggestion that historic land conservation isn't a component of "Quote unquote real preservation," and and that's interesting because there there is there does appear to be some disconnect. Uh, I'm curious if you picked up on that, but but more to the point, why this book? Why what got you interested in 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 this piece, and and what spurred this exploration of historic land conservation? Sure. Uh, for for many years, I was lucky to serve on a city commission in Alexandria, Virginia that actually owned property in the in the city and then also monitored i think it's 60 some preservation open space easements uh, within the city and uh, i learned about how the commissions came to own the property that they they own which is uh, known as lloyd house and right along washington street in alexandria and it turned out that they had the commission had gotten a grant from the what was uh, brand new at the time, the House, Department of Housing and Urban Development, for open space preservation. And that got me interested and, and you know, piqued my, or tweaked my curiosity. Well, what is this open space program that HUD was running in 1968? And so I learned all about the what was um, known as the Urban Renewal Administration's program starting in 1961 and how it operated in an era of urban renewal and how historic preservationists try to uh, shape and, and use this new grant program that was trying to acquire open spaces within effectively historic districts within urban America. 
by the end of the program, which is about 1973, when HUD goes to um, CDBG kind of uh, work, the funding had supplied enough money to, I think, purchase somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 acres across the United States in this open space program. And not surprisingly, the preservationists saw this as a real opportunity. Uh, and in some cases, they were able to, to latch on to the open space funding. So that open space program got me interested in easements generally and, and the, the issue of easements, which started me down the path to looking at probably the most uh, one of the most unique national park units, which is Piscataway Park across the river in Maryland from uh, Mount Vernon. And so then I became interested in what's known as Operation Overview, which is a, the 1950s to 1960s campaign by a variety of groups to preserve the view shed at Mount Vernon. That got me into uh, the larger issue of easements as the prescription for what was going to, to solve all of the conservation, the conservation problems at large in the 60s and 70s. And uh, that ended up leading me down the path of looking at the Land and Water Conservation Fund, farmland preservation, all sorts of other aspects. So it all started with my service on the commission here in Alexandria. And so how different is, would you, and I guess maybe to take a step back, how do you define historic land conservation? Because you just defined it, you just mentioned a lot of different versions of that. Do you have one definition of what is historic land conservation? Well, what I try to do in the book is to show how, just how different things were over the 50-year period from, say, the 1930s through the 1970s. In, in 1924, you've got the opening of the Metropolitan Museum and the whole issue, the idea of period rooms where it was acceptable to take apart buildings and deconstruct them and reinstall woodwork, what I like to call room-by-room -room vandalism, and reinstall it in museums or private houses. And that, that's acceptable practice then. Fifty years later after that, you have the Secretary of the Interior accepting easements on a 14,000-acre historic district in Louisa County, Virginia, known as Green Springs. At that time, 14,000 acres was the largest historic district in the entire country. And so there's a real transition from this almost a, a piecemeal approach to preservation in the 1920s and 1930s to one that really looks at the buzzword known as cultural landscapes. And so I think that what what I see, at least, and what I try to express in um, Saving Spaces is the idea that there's been this recognition that of and, and indeed, the story is one of the land conservation and the preservation movement and the environmental movement, in a way, joining together to recognize cultural landscapes rather and, and larger landscapes rather than you know, individual pieces of a building or individual buildings. You can obviously along the way you throw in the, the concept of historic districts and you move on from there. And so, I mean, I, I know you're a bureau historian. I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the Park Service, but in terms of historic landscape conservation, are we doing enough of it today? Do we have a broad enough view of that? Does your book take any editorial uh, approach in terms of where we're headed with all of this? Sure. Well, the book basically goes to about 1980. Um, obviously, there's a lot of changes that occur in how we were managing land and managing change after the uh, the 1980s or from 1980 on. Um, I try to, being a historian, I try to remain historical in these things. I think one of the things that folks recognize, even with the $11 billion that have been invested through the, the uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund, 
Um, one of the things that folks recognize is that even that, that wasn't frankly enough money and land values were just escalating in the sort of from the 1960s and 1970s to the point that what was considered huge amounts of money at the time just wasn't enough. And, and folks like Henry Diamond and others who were involved in this whole period saw that uh, pattern. And the fact also is that easements were seen as, as I said, as the prescription for what ailed us in terms of land values. And yet there was a, a lacking in recognition that easements are, are great, uh, a great option uh, that preservationists and conservationists can use, but they take constant maintenance. And I think we've forgotten that part of the equation. And the fact that easements, you know, the language of easements from 1965 probably could use a little revision as we move forward. You all, the book also talks, just kind of wrapping this up on the book, but it also talks about how what we preserve reflect our cultural values. Understanding you stopped in 80, are, where are we now with that? Do you have a sense for that? Well, I think Bob Garvey, who was uh, one of the leaders of the National Trust and with the Advisor Council in the 1970s, talked about this in, in a way. And he said, right as he was transitioning from the trust to the, the advisor council, he said, you know, it's the act of preservation and the product of that preservation, the property that is preserved, that really says something about us. Uh, it's an old saw, but it, really the kinds of places we choose to save for the next generation, the kind of places we choose to identify and recognize through all the various programs that there are and applying credits and all the rest, those are saying as much about us and how we feel we want to be remembered as it is about what really happened in the past. And so I think that that process continues. I think that's one of the exciting things and that we're able as historic preservationists, we're able to shape and reshape the, the kinds of things, the kinds of places that we're interested in and the kinds of places that we want our children and grandchildren to think about. Yeah. In some cases, perhaps preservation says more about us than it does about the places themselves. Very true. So if people want to pick up the book, uh, obviously it's thought-provoking. Obviously anyone listening to this podcast should want to read it. Presume you can pick it up on Amazon? I believe it's available. Um, both books were written for uh, because they both effectively came out of my teaching. Both of them are designed as um, textbooks, but uh, they have for the graduate and undergraduate crowd. But they have a certain um, relevance to anyone who's in the business these days. Certainly criteria book has a lot of how did we get here kind of thing. And frankly, saving spaces has the same thing in that it's telling stories about conventions and, and canon that we kind of remember, but we don't know the whole story about. So um, they were both published by Rutledge. Um, and so they're available from the Rutledge site and, and also on Amazon. And any other books coming up that we should be keeping an eye out for? Well, you're very kind. Um, I was very fortunate to receive uh, the Rockefeller Brothers and the National Trust um, uh, Fellowship, the Pocantico Fellowship this year. And part of that was for this uh, new work I'm working on. The day that the National Historic Preservation Act was signed in 1966, the other event that occurred that day was the Black Panthers were established. And that fact sort of made me start thinking about what's the relationship between the two movements, the civil rights movement and the historic preservation movement. Uh, in my Park Shutters job, I've done a lot of work on the history of the civil rights movement and, frankly, a little bit of work on the historic preservation movement. What I find uh, interesting is that, and I think uh, will be interesting, is to see how both of them respond to each other. 
And so I have a, a new project I'm working on looking at the response of historic preservation to the impact of the civil rights movement. Sounds interesting and, and certainly timely in terms of uh, everything that's going on in this country. And, and also back to that conversation about the places we protect and what that says about us and what it says about where we stand as a culture. Well, that's, I think, in some ways, um, from, from my perspective, because I'm not a, a, the best brick and mortar kind of person, uh, but the, the choices we make really do matter. And the choices that we make today have real consequences for the future. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be part of that. Well, we've asked you all the softball questions now. Now we need to know your favorite historic place or site. Wow, that, that is a difficult one. Um, my wife and I are the stewards of two National Register listed properties, uh, one here in Alexandria, the 1920s bungalow in the Rosemont Historic District. So um, for my Virginia friends, I'll say that property. <laughs> I actually think the most important building in the Commonwealth of Virginia is the Gerald Ford House that's over in the little community called Clover in Alexandria. It's where It was the White House for about 14 days during the Watergate era. Um, and it's a very compelling, very, very plain mid-century uh, split level that you wouldn't, any architectural historian would say it doesn't have any integrity, but it's quite the important property. So for my um, Virginia friends, I'll mention that. Um, in Maryland, I guess I have to say it's our family house over in Chestertown. It's, a, it's our own little bit of agricultural and historic legacy and, and uh, effectively a, a conservation story in its own right. Um, so it's one I love to hate, as they say, given how much work these things are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, very interesting, uh, and we'll have to have you back when the next book comes out to talk about that. Thanks for all the good work that you're doing out there, John. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, and I got to say, I thank you very much, and uh, you guys are doing really good work, too. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.